wrapping up our Christmas at the Movies series today. And if it's your first time in here with us, what we're doing is we're taking a familiar, maybe a favorite Christmas movie, one that's watched on an annual basis, and we're doing our best to ruin it for you forever. Now, I mean, we don't really want to ruin your movie, but what I want to do is I want to tie in biblical truths to some of these movies and, and these traditions that we do on an annual basis. It, the, the things that we do every year to celebrate Christmas, they should point us towards Christ. And I want to provide some thoughts and some opportunities to, to use these things like common movies to engage in important conversations with our spouses, our children, our families, our coworkers. And, and so today, today's movie is one we're going to dive into, and it's, it's something that, that I think you kind of figure out where I'm going here, but I, I don't know if you've ever forgot to pick up a child from somewhere that you're supposed to, like, there's a certain feeling that you have as a parent. I think it might actually be worse when it's someone else's child, like, especially, like, it's one thing to figure your own kid, but if you forget to pick up someone else's kid or, like, leave them at a grocery store, I haven't done that, and I wouldn't admit to doing that on the stage, but if you had, there's a feeling that you'd have. I mean, it's kind of funny, in Luke chapter 2, I don't know if you realize that this happened, this is part of the, the Gospels, when Jesus was a boy, his parents would go to Jerusalem every year for a festival, and one of the times they lost him. Like, they were, they were on their way back with their whole big group of people and their family, and they suddenly realized, we left Jesus in Jerusalem. Like, God, I lost your son. Like, how do you explain that one? I just wasn't paying attention to him. And they went back and they found him, and it's an interesting thing, but it, that, that feeling and that sense and that dread of, oh no, I, I've misplaced a child momentarily, I need to go find them, that, that's pretty well summed up in the, mo- the Christmas movie that I'm sure you've already figured out. Um, today we're going to be taking a couple clips from the movie Home Alone, and we're going to be showing, now this messes with my mind, and I said it wrong during the first service, this movie was released in 1990, which I'm pretty sure was just like 10 years ago. In my mind, I said it was 19 years ago, but in reality, that was 29 years ago. That is not right. <laughs> There's something wrong with that. But that movie was released 29 years ago. And if you'd never, you've never seen it between now and then, I don't know how you've managed to do that. But here's the premise of the movie. There's a family called the McAllisters, and they have a brother-in-law who moved to Paris, and they are going to take a Christmas trip with their entire extended family to be all together over Christmas. And during getting everybody into the same house as they're going to go to the airport tomorrow, they're having dinner, and their son, Kevin, gets upset that someone ate the last slice of cheese pizza, and so he kind of throws a temper tantrum, pushes somebody Soda gets spilled all over the table, ruins everyone's dinner, and that's where we're going to kind of pick up the first scene from the movie. Let's go ahead and play that first clip. on purpose. He knows I had sausage and olives and Look what you did, you little jerk. Kevin, get upstairs right now. Why? Kevin, you're such a disease. Shut up. Kevin, upstairs. Say goodnight, Kevin. Goodnight, Kevin. Now it's for dinner. Brothers, such a like we don't know. 
The third floor? Go. It's scary up there. Don't be silly. Fuller will be up in a little while. I don't want a super fuller. You know about him. He wets the bed. He'll pee all over me. I know it. Fine. We'll put him somewhere else. I'm sorry. It's too late. Get upstairs. Everyone in this family hates me. Then maybe you should ask Santa for a new family. I don't want a new family. I don't want any family. Families suck. Just stay up there. I don't want to see you again for the rest of the night. I don't want to see you again for the rest of my whole life. And I don't want to see anybody else either. I hope you don't mean that. You'd feel pretty sad if you woke up tomorrow morning and you didn't have a family. No, I wouldn't. Then say it again. Maybe it'll happen. I hope I never see any jerks again. they would all just disappear. The film does a really good job of creating the tension and the feeling of him being completely on the outside. Everyone is angry at him. And, and while I will say, uh, you know, if one of my children talked to me like that, I might be tempted to make them sleep in the attic, too, at the same time. Like, we, we kind of feel both things, and we? We're like, okay, he shouldn't be talking and acting that way. Also, a grown-up should not be calling a child a jerk like that. And there, there's these different feelings. And they're probably somewhat familiar because we've seen things like this play out in our own families where someone is causing issues or someone feels on the outside or maybe you feel out on the outside and I want to say that when it comes to the person who feels like they're the black sheep of the family or they're, they're the one that everyone's upset at, they, they typically don't get there on their own. Like they have some responsibility to own on, on, on getting there. It's not just that everybody gangs up on one person. There, there's choices that are made, and we've seen that play out. And in the movie, there's choices that were made that kind of pushed him out. And within our own families, there's definitely, if you're on the inside of the circle, there's definitely a sense of, well, if you act that way, then of course... If you talk that way, then of course. If you don't listen the way that you should, then, then of course that, you're going to end up in the attic. You're going to end up on the outside. There's a feeling like that if you're on the part of the inside. There's a feeling of you're, you made your bed, now you get to sleep in it. But when it comes to the way that we relate to each other, when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 18, he actually began to set a different standard, a different perspective that he wanted us to adopt. And we're going to study a large section of Matthew 18. We're actually going to pull from three different teachings today, which is an interesting thing to do. Uh, and they're all in a row. And if you didn't realize, the Gospels, as they were written, they were intended for the entire Gospel, like the, the Gospel of Matthew. The intention was that you would read the entire thing in one sitting, which we don't read like that too much anymore, but you do understand the book differently when you sit down and read the entire, the entire Gospel of Matthew. But as we look at this section, the reason I want to look at the whole section is because Jesus is teaching to us and he's trying to change some of our perspectives of how we relate, deal with, help, encourage each other. And starting at the very first part, we're going to put the verse 12, verse 12 up on the screen behind me. And Jesus is teaching, and this is a familiar passage, and it says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out 
to search for the one who is lost. And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than, more, more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Now, Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching a perspective here. He's telling us some about the heart of God, and he's using the illustration of a good shepherd, a good shepherd that has a hundred sheep, and if one of them strays away, won't he leave the hundred and go and search out after that one? And as we read this passage, and it's a familiar passage, there's some things that, that, that are important details that I think that we can easily miss, because especially as the experience plays out within the church, we have... I feel like we have a good amount of grace for someone who was never part of the church, had a rough upbringing, didn't have good opportunities, but then they come into the church and they start getting their life together and they get out of addiction and we celebrate that person. But the person who had opportunities and who was in the church and had their life together, but then wanders away, when they try to come back, sometimes they're met with skepticism. And it's like we have more grace for the person who didn't have a chance, but the person who was part of the group before, we're not quite sure if we want to bring them right back in. But I want to call your attention to as he was teaching in this, this parable, that the person he's describing is the one who was there but wandered off. And God is teaching that, that he doesn't just have grace for the person who was part of the family and wandered off. It actually says that he rejoices over them. That this is God's perspective when someone who had it all together and completely fell apart, when they start coming back, God says, I, I'm celebrating that person is coming back. And I want you to understand that so that you know the heart of God, but I also want you to know that this is being taught to us by Jesus so that we will adopt his heart set as well. Then when we see someone who has fallen away and they start coming back, it's not that we would meet them with skepticism, but that we would meet them with joy. And the same truth that we would apply to someone else and that we should be applying to someone else, I want to make sure that you apply it to yourself as well because sometimes it's easier to show other people grace. And I want to continue to, to instill and, and remind you that if you feel like I should have known better, God still says, I want you to come home. If there's a voice that says, no, you need to prove your track record a little bit more. You need to get your life a little bit more together. You, you, need, you need to get organized. And then once you, you look like you have it all together again, then you can get back to going to church. That voice that you hear inside of you is garbage. It's lies. It's deception. We come back here in the mess that we put ourselves in, and then the family, the church of God surrounds you and holds you up. The work of the Spirit in this place encourages your heart. You find teaching and truth from Scripture here. It's not fix yourself and then come here. It's come here so that God can be at work. And so when we talk about the person who has wandered away, and as Jesus teaches, this is the person who was there who knew better. They knew better. But they still messed up. We welcome that person back. We celebrate that person coming back. And so one of the practical ways that I think that, that that gets demonstrated by a church in today's world is, first of all, that when someone comes back, we're excited to see them. And we, know that, and we let them know that it's important that they're here, that we're excited that they're here. But one of the other ways is that when someone is not yet back in the church, when someone doesn't have a, a place where, where they can go and, and call their spiritual home, that they know that they're welcomed here. That through our invitations, because here's the truth, God has given you access 
to specific people. There are people at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, at your grocery store that you see regularly enough that it's just common for you to talk to each other. And you don't necessarily know what's going on in their story, but God has positioned you in a place where you are a source of either helping them feel welcomed at church and invited in, or just by your silence, they will assume that they're not welcomed in that place. And I want to tell you, so many times in my life that God has put someone near me and I just purely out of obligation, I'm the pastor, I have to do it. I know they're going to say no, but I have to invite them to church because it's like the rule for the pastor. The pastor has to invite people. Like I'm not a normal human, I just have to do that all the time. And so there's a person there and I know they're going to say no and it's out of obligation because I know God has called us to be invitational, to be a welcoming place. I invite them. And then they say, yeah, I'll go. And I'm like, no, 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 you misunderstood. I meant like come to church with me. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to go. Now, I mean this weekend. Yeah, I'll, I'll go this weekend. Okay. And, and then they come, even though I thought they would never want to come. And, and God begins to work in their life and work in their family. And, and this joy that Jesus promises breaks into their life. And in my own senses, in my own reasoning, I never would have thought that like they'd respond to an invitation. But because I have from other pastors and friends and studies had it hammered into my head that we're supposed to be a place that goes out towards people who have fallen away, who've wandered away, or who have been lost, we're supposed to go towards them. It's just ingrained in me that I should be invitational. But it should stop surprising me when people come home and find joy and find peace and find a family in this place. And I say that because I want you to see the opportunities that you have around you, ones that you don't think that they would ever respond to. You would be surprised how many people have it in, in their heart and head, I wish I had a church to go to. But I don't know where to go. I don't know who I'd sit with. I don't know if it would be awkward if I just showed up at some place, and so they just don't go. And so part of what, what I see in this teaching is, is his example that, that Jesus came. He came for us who had wandered away and we have to adopt this mindset. And so I'm going to give just three simple reminders. I don't pretend to be teaching you anything brand new today, but just I want to remind you about three important things. And the first one from this first section of his teaching that I believe is shaping our perspective of how we work with each other is that no one is left behind. That the people who surround us in our life, that, that we don't want any of them to feel like they have been left behind or forgotten. That, that we have gone through our week, our month, and our year without ever trying to bring them closer to this heavenly father that loves them and so within my own story and within your own story I want us both to have peace that the people that God has positioned around us they would say yes they, they've tried to pray with me they've tried to encourage me they've tried to invite me they've tried to invite me to go to any church they've tried to get me somewhere to help me we want to make sure that the people that God has surrounded with us that they don't feel like we just don't care we want to make sure that no one feels left behind and when one wanders off, we leave the 99 and we go towards them. You know, in the movie, the morning of when Kevin got left behind, they, they woke up late and it was rushed and it was easy to, to miss things. And then Kevin is left in this situation. There's a lot of slapstick comedy about defending the house. There's some other interesting storylines in the movie. Like there, there's an elderly man in his neighborhood that they're pretty sure is a serial killer because they just don't see anyone around him. And so they're all terrified of him. And there's one night, and you may have forgotten about the scene in the movie. It's a really interesting scene. Kevin is missing his family so much and recognizing how much he loves them, and he, he, he's lonely, and he actually goes to church one night in the movie. 
And then when he's there, he sees the guy who he's terrified by. And let's, let's hop into that video clip. Merry Christmas. May I sit down? You can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. Okay? Been a good boy this year? I think so. You swear to it? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Well, this is the place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself. It is? I think so. Are you feeling bad about yourself? No. I've been kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I really haven't been too good this year. Yeah. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love him. But you can forget that you love him. And you can hurt them, and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. I came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You got plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? Oh, you're always welcome at church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. How old is he? Well, he's grown up. We lost our tempers, and I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. We haven't spoken to each other since. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark, there's weird stuff down there, and it smells funny, that sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. Yeah, basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it. And he won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was, I talked to my dad, especially around the holidays. I don't know. Just give it a shot, for your granddaughter anyway. I'm sure she misses you and the presents. Preach, Kevin. That's right. Um, we've all had those relationships where reconciliation is needed. And often it's not brand new information that we need to bring us there, but it's just the simple reminder. I know that it's scary to step into that moment, but it's better to just step into it and find out be wondering what might happen or what might have happened. 
In this section, Jesus starts off teaching about the parable that if one of you starts acting stupid and wanders off, the good shepherd goes after them and seeks after them to try to bring them back. And this is our perspective and our heartbeat for someone when they wander off. But then he goes into the next section and he teaches about the method of reconciliation. And, and there's this passage that describes the way that when, when something goes wrong between us, this is the way that you should handle it. In verse 15, he says, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Now, we get this mistranslated into our own language and culture somehow of if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. We kind of mistranslate that as if another believer sins against you, post about it on social media. (laughs) Complain about it to other people. I mean, this is the scriptural instruction from Jesus himself. When there's an issue between you and someone else, specifically, go privately and deal with it. And although that feels so difficult on our heart, we know that that is the best opportunity to make things better, is to not blow it up, not rant about it online in front of other people. The best way to really make things better is to just go to them. But, but, but if they don't react well to that, what verse 16 says is, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now, this is dealing with when there's an offense, when there's a sin against someone. And it, I want to note, because we like to bring two others in earlier just to like kind of conference. We wouldn't want to call it gossip. Um, but if we're bringing people in without the intention of them coming along and helping, I mean, because the whole point of bringing two other people in, in this passage, is that you would take them with you, and so that the four of you would work towards reconciliation. Going to someone who you know is just going to gossip with you, I I mean, I compare it to like, you can get a drink of water out of a toilet, but I don't think it's going to be healthy for you. Getting spiritual advice from someone who wants to gossip, I mean, you you can do it, but it's not going to be healthy for you. You know what your breath is going to smell like after you do that. You know the words that come out of your mouth after you get advice from someone who enjoys gossip. You know what it's going to be. It's not going to be helpful. And so what what, what this section is doing, I, I believe it's building a perspective. First, when someone messes up, we go after them and we try to help them. If they messed up against us, we personally go to them and try to help correct the situation. If they won't, then we take two mature people and we have a conversation, the four of us, to try to fix it. Not, not a conversation about the person, but about the situation. And, and we try to fix what's happening. And I think part of why we're, we're so unhealthy as a culture is that we, we don't know how to do correction anymore. I mean, it starts in our own families. It's like our kids won't listen at all. And I don't understand why, because they have a completely perfect parent who has never made a mistake and never said anything wrong. And I don't know where they would learn that behavior where they think that they're always right from. Right? I, I mean, when, when I see this passage, one of the encouragements that just come right to my heart that I want to give to the church, when it comes to reconciliation, we need to have a heart that's ready to be corrected. We need to have a heart that's humble enough to say, I could have done that differently. I could have done that better. We need to have a heart that's ready to say, I'm sorry. 
And I know that it's like, well, they don't understand. They misunderstood. That wasn't my intention. All of the excuses that so readily flow right out of my mouth whenever I've messed something up need to be replaced by a teachable spirit. And this design of when we've offended someone or they've offended us, of going to them, we need to already have a culture within our family that starts from our own heart and our own attitude that says, when I've messed up, I'm going to own it. Because you weren't meant to be perfect. And the thing that I, I tell our staff and our, our leaders, and I want to tell you all the time, is we aim at excellence, but not perfection. There, there's going to be times where we fall short, and we always want to do our best, but we have to recognize and we have to be ready for the reality, I'm going to make mistakes at times. I mean, Jesus wrote this to us because he knew mistakes would be made in the church. Offenses will happen. And so here's the design. Here's what we do. And so this is the second simple thing that I want on your head and your heart. We have to be teachable. We have to be correctable. Especially at the holidays, offenses pop up as we're all under the same roof. And we need to, we have to enter this season ready to claim a mistake if we made it. We have to be teachable. And, and, you know, I know so many of us, we can explain what being teachable is, but we can't necessarily pull it off very well. We, we can explain what patience is, but we don't always demonstrate it. We, we can explain what humility is, but we don't always have it. Which is just, this is just a whole side sermon. This is a whole different sermon. But there's a truth that you can have spiritual knowledge, but if you don't have spiritual action, it's worthless. If you don't take the things that you've learned and put them into practice, that's just deception. That's just spiritual entertainment. An interesting thing to discuss. If we hear these truths and we don't put them into practice, you know, any, any of those spiritual disciplines you want to talk about, humility, uh, e- even worship itself, you can talk all about what worship is. But if you come into church and you don't worship your heavenly Father, what's the good in it? What's the good in the knowledge if it isn't put into practice? What is the good in understanding the way to solve a problem if you won't use that equation to fix the problems and the relationships that are in your life? There's so many people who can explain so many deep spiritual things, but they don't practice the most important and basic spiritual truths. And that's what I want for you. I, I don't care how deeply you understand post-millennialism. I don't, your eschatology, that's fun to talk about. I care about, are you, are you demonstrating love to your household and to your neighbors? Are you reflecting the heartbeat of Jesus that goes towards those who are far from him? When you're in a, in a place to worship your heavenly father, are you passionately engaging him with your whole heart or are you coasting through the motions? You can understand these things to depths, but if you don't put them into practices, what's the value? We have a design for correcting mistakes and broken relationships, but if we don't put it into practice, what's the, what's the purpose of knowing it? We have to be teachable. We have to be willing to change. God isn't calling me to be able to define the terms. He's calling me to fulfill the terms. So our behaviors, our lives have to change. And, you know, I, like you, I'm, I'm guilty of falling short on so many things. I mean, from, from the, the simple times where I should be more patient to just, yeah, we, we see this so much in our culture right now, and, and it, it's a serious issue. Just 
even like people texting while driving. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, because as we get into this next section that Jesus talks about, he talks about an unpayable debt. And we hear that, and we don't always engage in that understanding the way that we should, but we've seen this through the news so many different times. It's one of the reasons why they're changing the laws in Florida about even touching your phone while you drive. Someone will look down to look at a text message, and they won't see the person on the sidewalk or the person near the road, and someone will get injured or killed by a car. And all of us, I think, are probably guilty of looking at that phone while driving, but I can't imagine if that small distraction led to that moment where I had to explain to someone's family that I took their family member from them because I wanted to look at the phone. I couldn't imagine the inescapable debt that I would feel towards that person, towards their family. I couldn't imagine the heartache of feeling like I've just lost everything because of that decision and I've just taken everything away from someone else. It would be an unimaginable debt. As Jesus continues teaching in this, he goes into a next section and he teaches about a, a servant who owed an unimaginable debt to his master. And in this time and culture, the way that that debt would be paid is that his wife and his children, his family would be sold to pay the debt. He would be imprisoned to earn and attempt to pay, repay the debt. And, and depending on whether this debt was referred to as being in silver or gold, it would be equal to like the gross national um, product of an entire country. Like it was unpayable. It was unimaginable. And the man pleads before the master. And in verse 26, he says, But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Now, I, this debt that he owed meant the ruin of his entire family. It was a just debt. He was in trouble, and he begged, and he was showed incredible compassion and mercy. And in verse 28, and this is the teaching that Jesus is trying to drive in this, but when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat, and the picture in the Greek that he gives is shaking and squeezing the throat, and he grabbed this other servant by the throat who owed him a few thousand dollars and demanded instant payment. And then in the parable, the other servants saw this, and they were outraged. He was just forgiven this incredible amount, and someone else owes him a little, and he's having him thrown into jail. They went back and told the master, and the master brought justice to the situation. And he said, you will pay every penny of the debt that you owe me. And the teaching moment, the reason that Jesus brought this out is he said, how can you who, who will be forgiven an unimaginable amount. And whether you recognize it or not, the sins that we have been forgiven of, we could never have earned enough to pay them back to God. We, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before Him. We could never earn good standing with God. We have been forgiven an unimaginable debt. And Jesus is teaching here, and He says, you who've been forgiven an unimaginable debt, how could you hold a grudge? When you've been forgiven so much, how could you hold on to such a small offense in view of what I am doing for you? And so we, we, we take these pieces, we take this section to build the perspective that Jesus wants us to have. He says, when one of you guys fall away, you don't just say, oh, you're going to get what you deserve. No, no, no. You go after them. When, when there's an offense, you go and speak to them and you, and you work towards reconciliation. And when you see them, you don't hold on to that debt because you have been forgiven an incredible debt. 
Within the last scene, we see that call with the neighbor who is encouraged by a child, just call your son. And when the movie's ending, we see Macaulay Culkin on Christmas Eve, and he, he, he doesn't want toys, he just wants his family back. And then he goes to sleep on Christmas Eve, and we're going to pick up this next scene right here. Where's everybody else? Oh, baby, they couldn't come. They wanted to so much. No, I didn't fall asleep in the back of the cabin. Jewel, you did I? You do, Jewel. Oh, it's good to see you. Ah, you're all right. I love you. You okay? Hey, Kev. It's pretty cool that you didn't burn the place down. <laughs> Thanks, Buzz. Wait a minute. How did you guys get home? Oh, we took the morning flight, remember? The one you didn't want to wait for? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, thank Merry you. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Okay. Well, someone has to find an open store. We don't even have milk here. I went shopping yesterday. You shopping? I got to milk, eggs, and fabric softener. 
No kidding. What a funny guy. What else did you do while we were away? Just hung around. there's something in our heart that, that longs for restoration. I think that when we see the, the pictures of it, when we hear the stories of it, our, our heart rejoices over it because we know that we were meant to be in right relationship with each other. I think one of the biggest evidences for, for us being restored to God is that same love and forgiveness that he gave us that just naturally flows to the people around us. So the, the third, the final, the easy point, the, the thing that we know but we need to do is we, we have to forgive. We have to forgive. We, we can't help but forgive because God has forgiven us so many things. The grace that he's given us is unimaginable. So we, we don't have a right to hold a grudge. And so, in the movie you saw, you know, Kevin hugged his mom. We also saw that the man across the street, he must have made that call. He must have called his son. He was holding his granddaughter for the first time in years. And I believe the evidence of the gospel is restoration. Now, you can't control someone else's reaction. And you might feel a sense of fear that I, there's a call I need to make, there's a step that I need to take, but there's a sense of fear that they may not react well. It's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to take the step, to communicate grace. So this love that has been poured into our life by Christ can affect those God has surrounded us with. I know that it can be a tall order, it can be a difficult step, God is moving on your heart. I don't know if there's a better gift to give him at Christmas time than showing our Heavenly Father, I will extend forgiveness the way that you forgave me. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this extravagant grace. We thank you for this love that is so powerful that even when we've wandered away, and it was our fault. You still came after us. And even when we, we couldn't earn it, and we don't deserve it, that you have given us this grace and this love. So if there's a call that we need to make, give us courage. Give us strength. Help us to rely on you. And help us to continue to see the world the way that you've taught us to see it through your teachings. 
Thank you for this opportunity that you give us in this time. In Jesus' name.